You're listening to WMUA News. I'm Owen Embry. In the canon of UMass alums, one of the most consistently overlooked figures is poet and musician David Berman. Through eight albums with his band Silver Jews, he established himself as one of the most lyrically dense and skillful songwriters in rock music history. In the mid-1990s, he lived here in the Pioneer Valley and received a master's degree in poetry from UMass, where he studied under former professor and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet James Tate, while also serving as a teaching assistant. It was during these years that he wrote 1994's Starlight Walker and 1996's The Natural Bridge. His lyrics dealt with faith, social ideals, and personal struggles through mundane imagery like convenience store mirrors, state birds, clothes hangers, and split-level ranch houses. He saw himself as a poet first and foremost, and largely rejected the rock star life, preferring not to tour and to limit publicity when possible. In 1999, he published his only collection of poetry, titled Actual Air, of which Tate wrote, quote, They are narratives that freeze life in impossible contortions, unquote. Berman would disband Silver Jews in 2009 and receded from the public almost entirely until releasing his eponymous final album, Purple Mountains, shortly before his death in August of 2019. I spoke with Bob Nastanovich of Pavement, who was a longtime friend and founding member of Silver Jews, about David's creative origins, his body of work, and his struggles with mental health. Have a listen. Hello? Hey, this is Bob. How are you? I'm doing good, Bob. This is Owen. How are you doing over hey, there? Hey, Alan. How's everything? Yeah, doing great. Yeah, I just got kind of, um, actually got caught up in, um, um, I've been um, asked to compose blueprints of um, pavement set lists for these upcoming gigs before we start practicing, so I've been working on those. Yeah. Is that for the <clears> new uh, tour? Is the tour around uh, the reissue, or is it just the reissue comes with the tour? Oh, we were supposed to do um, Primavera Sound Festival in 2020, so this is the, I guess this is the third reschedule of it. So we're going to play two shows in Southern Europe in June, and then the tour that we do in September is just kind of a, yeah, I think it's, I think it's basically just like a reunion type thing, number two. All right. Sweet. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you just want to introduce who you are uh, and sort of what relation you had to David and Silver Jews. Yeah, no, I mean, I was uh, David was one of my best friends since I was 18 years old. I met him a few months into my um, college experience at University of Virginia, and then we went on and, um, well, he's my best friend for years, and then when we all lived together in, the, in North Jersey, um, starting in, 89, um, we started uh, Silver Jews with uh, Stephen Malsmith. And, um, you know, off and on, I was a member and tour manager of Silver Jews, uh, mostly in the early years, but, uh, you know, continued to be one of David's uh, close friends until, well, the last time I saw him would have been his uh, his birthday before he uh, died. Mm. So, uh, how did you, what's the story behind you first meeting David? How'd that happen? Um, I was, yeah, no, I mean, there's 11,000 students at University of Virginia, and there was 3,000 of them in our first year of class. And um, I I met a guy very early on when I was at UVA named Maynard Sipes, and he was booking all the rock shows in town. Um, and uh, I basically started putting up flyers so I could get into shows for free. And um, I lived about a quarter quarter mile from David's dorms. And, like, um, basically I met him when I was putting up rock show flyers, like, the second month I was at UVA. And we didn't really become good friends until a couple months after that. Then we just kept seeing each other at the punk rock and, you know, weird music shows around town that Maynard would book. And then... You know, we were pretty fast friends. Uh, by the end of our first year of college, which would have been spring of 86, um, you know, we were definitely close buddies then. Yeah. And uh, when were you first exposed to his literary talents or his artistic talents in general? Um, Probably, like, 
in 86. I mean, I knew that he was what you call an Eccles scholar at UVA, which means that he had um, a superior um, set of achievements, um, which put him in a group of about, I'd say maybe 150 or 200 people that all lived in a dorm um, uh, called, I don't know, it was a new dorm. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he started, he was, you know, basically went there because he was a very talented writer and he'd been recognized by James Tate and Charles Wright. Um, who were two very fa- famous poets, um, very early on in his college career as being very gifted. And throughout the early years of our friendship, um, it became apparent to me that he was a very unusually talented writer. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, he was a very normal 18 and 19-year-old. I mean, I mean, normal from the sense that he went to class and partied, and um, for lack of a better verb. And... Um, but, you know, part of that was his astounding creativity, um, which, you know, was obviously extremely entertaining, very engaging personality, highly intelligent person, and uh, just somebody that, you know, really everyone who knew him was attracted to because <clears throat> he was, uh, especially in the context of EVA, he was a very unique individual and, and uh, thoroughly likable. And um, I myself, you know, I... I, I loved him, you know, so um, admired him, and and um, his work was just uh, a bonus. Like, throughout his time at UVA, he compiled um, quite a bit of work, but he was always carrying around bits of paper and napkins and uh, pens, and whether you were hanging out at a bar or a party or whatever that, he was always taking notes and uh, making observations and drawing cartoons. So it was just part of his shtick. And then sometimes he would isolate himself and feverishly write things. I remember looking through, this would have been 87, 88, um, looking through his bedroom window all the time, wondering if he he was interested in going out for the night. Yeah, he would signal like, you know, we didn't have cell phones. He'll be out in an hour, you know, so we check back on him in an hour. He lived across the street from me, you know, before I lived with him, he lived, lived across the street. And um, he, had, he had an old-fashioned typewriter and uh, really kind of cool, uh, meticulously decorated room. David was always a, um incredible collector of unusual things, and he was highly organized, feverishly organized, so... Um, you know, like his room was very precious to him throughout the time that I knew him. And, you know, if you went in there, you felt like you were kind of sitting in somebody's office. Um, and, uh, so yeah, no, he was, <clears throat> as a writer, he was really organized and he did not want to let any of his unique thoughts um, escape him, um, really from a young age, which was, Something that really should be recommended to all creative people that, um, you know, don't let your floods of, uh, you know, of things that fall upon you. I, mean, I do it all the time. Like, I'll observe something very interesting, and then I won't take a note of it, um, and it'll slip my mind. David was determined to not let things slip his mind. He kind of was constantly chronicling everything that he did really from the first several months that I met him when he was a kid, you know? Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and he came from a very, he came from a very unique background. Like he, um, his parents divorced when he was a young kid and, uh, he mostly had been raised by his mother in Worcester, Ohio. And when he was like a sophomore, junior in high school, his father, um, he moved to Dallas and lived with his father, which was a completely different lifestyle than Worcester. And that led into his UVA years. So, um, you know, the the Dallas experience when he was kind of a gothy teen <laughs> was very eye-opening compared to his 
sort of more modest, um, you know, sort of more blue collar background in Worcester. Um, so by the time he got to UVA, he was, you know, pretty sophisticated. Um, obviously, a huge fan of underground music, things like The Cure and Joy Division, Echo and the Bunnymen, R.E.M. I mean, he was just like, uh, I mean, I guess we really first bonded because we both loved underground music um, and, went, and went to see shows all the time. Yeah. And uh, what was your guys' plan for uh, after UVA? I mean, my plan was to move to New York City and become a bus driver. He left um, UVA, and he spent the first summer after we graduated in Austin, Texas. And um, he was there for three or four months. He was, like, washing dishes. And, like, Austin was an amazing place back then, um, you know, before it kind of, like, became the ultra-commercial shithole that it is now in a way. But um, And uh, he loved it. And I moved to New York and somehow, perhaps even wrongly, maybe convinced him to move to the New York City metropolitan area. And um, I don't know how I enticed him to do that because there was plenty going on in Austin. But I think he... You know, he wanted to be with his buddies. He had, a, in addition to myself, Malcolm's was there. Malcolm's moved there at about the same time as he did. Hmm. And the three the three of us moved into a place in Jersey City. And then I moved down to Hoboken. David stayed there for a while. And then the two of them moved out to um, Brooklyn, like Greenpoint, Williamsburg, like before they were like places where you had to spend $4,000 a month to get an apartment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, no, it was like we just descended upon New York City and we were total outsiders. Um, Malcolm is, of course, enormously talented in his own right. And um, I always felt compelled to um, try to figure out a way to unite these two guys' talent. And, you know, to me, which, you know, were immense talents. Now, I didn't intend to be correct <laughs> um, i just thought that they were amazing people you know and uh and you know they took they weren't fast friends like i was with both of them separately and um over the years um their friendship developed and and mostly it was creative most mostly was built upon the early years of the silver jews um yeah. and then by after a few years went by david was sort of spurred by the success of Pavement, and he wanted to make sure that he didn't have to live underneath the shadow of Pavement. Like he, he felt like the best way for him to uh, establish himself was to combine his writing ability and his love of music, but he did not want to be referred to as a Pavement side band or anything like that. So there was a certain amount of resistance you know, as we went through the 90s that he wanted to establish himself on his own. And part of that was to dispose of, you know, playing with the other two guys that started the band, um, which I understand in hindsight um, would have been after the uh, Starlight Walker record. um, He decided to make that natural bridge record and then 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 he kind of realized that he he obviously didn't need me because um, i can barely drum but he needed malcolm so he rehired malcolm for american water which is of course a brilliant album and um but he and malcolm always sort of had a magical way of, of working together and then you know their relationship like came and went over the years um i mean david's got a very competitive or had a very competitive personality. Um, so, um, which was, you know, I think part of, which definitely drove him until the end. I mean, I think he stopped Silver Jews when he did the first time. Excuse me. I'm choking on a cop chop. Oh. <laughs> um, he then, uh, you know, he just, he, he thought Silver Jews had run their course, so he stopped for a while and, 
thought about doing other things. And then it took him nearly a decade to make that Purple Mountains record. And um, he felt like he was kind of an, on an island by himself. At that point, he was traveling all around the country and Canada and trying to perfect his, you know, record. And uh, But his you know, entire body of work, whether it be his poetry, um, things like Actual Air and and um, what's it called, Portable February and um, other things, early years, and uh, all the Jews records and stuff like that's pretty formidable. And um, he was also an extremely good poetry reader. Um, he was, you know, he'd travel around the world and read his poetry. And after, um, after a while, he actually left New York in the early 90s and went and got his master's degree at, at UMass. And, yeah. I, you know, I continued I continue to be friends with him there. And he introduced me to a lot of people that became his bandmates, whether it be Peyton Pinkerton or Matt Hunter, you know, several other people, um, Ryan Murphy from Drag City. Um, but really sort of David's work was immediately acknowledged by Dan Koretsky and Dan Osborne at Drag City. And they sort of, you know, in a very, they're a very, very patient way, um, champion David. And um, really, I think, you know, got, got a lot of really amazing things out of him. It made it a very formidable career. I mean, um, so it's an absolute pleasure to be associated with him. I mean, like, you know, obviously, just like most friendships the last over three decades, there are, there are highs and lows. I mean, um, you know, David and I got in a lot of fights, um, even a few physical altercations along the way. Um, but uh, I think, you know, the, you know, the love was pretty mutual. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, what the recording process was like for those first tapes in New York, how those came about. Yeah. Mm. Easy, really. We just had a tape recorder. <laughs> um, we just had, you know, the first several, the first year or two, we just had a tape recorder, like one you'd buy from a thrift store for $2 with an AC adapter. And we would just, um, I was very fortunate that I had a basement apartment in Hoboken that was very cheap. And we lived below a very loud family that were kind of like 24-hour party people. <laughs> and I think there was like, in a very small space, there was like 8 to 10 people living directly above us. We were in the basement. And that allowed us the opportunity at any hour really to be as loud as we wanted to be. So we didn't have to worry about, you know, and... Hoboken, which is a very busy city, um, we didn't have to worry about making noise. So we could just put the tape recorder on top of the box TV set, and I would just try to keep time. I didn't really have proper drums, and they had two small amps and three or four guitars. And um, so before we ever went in the studio, um, you know, that's the way the records were made. I mean... And we never intended them to be released, but David had heard of and then befriended Dan Koretsky and sent him these tapes. And he, I guess, you know, you got to keep in mind, like, this is an era where Daniel Johnson was a celebrated artist kind of, you know, using the same very limited technology, um, if you can even use the word technology to describe it. But it was like the peak of lo-fi. I mean, there was... Mm -hmm. Dozens of artists, including, of course, Lou Barlow, um, early Subido years. And there was dozens of artists, Jandak, that people were just, like, doing weird home recordings, either on tape recorders or on very cheap, like, Tascam four-track machines. And uh, and then at some point, I guess, you know, <clears throat> you know, through, you know, via dance support, um we ended up in the studio. Um, David, I can't remember the exact summer. It would have been like 91 or 92, if I had to guess. 
I don't have the chronology in front of me, but we, but he had moved down to Oxford, Mississippi for a few months where he'd met a guy that was running out of chemistry lab for $150 a month. So he just lived in there. And so Stephen and I traveled down to Oxford and uh, Dan had booked us for maybe two or three days at Eastleigh Studio in Memphis, which is a very reputable recording studio. And we went in there and, you know, we, of course, were it's always nice to have Malcolmus because he's a very gifted musician. Um, but we, you know, immediately, obviously, you're apprehensive about going to a real recording studio when you, you know, when your music's very crude um, in terms of it's, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we went in there, and those guys just they immediately made us feel at home and, and, um, you know, my drumming was rather limited, and and David and Stephen had met Steve West, um, who actually, you know, then of course went on to be in Pavement, and he had he actually could play he played drums. I, I went to high school with him, and and he, you know, he knew how to play drums. So Starlight Walker, which I think is probably the um, that in Arizona record and Dime Map of the Reef, like you know maybe the first sixty Silver Juice songs I was, you know, a part of, and then. Here and there, up until the end, I would make the occasional appearance, you know. Um, but, you know, formatively, it was just basically about three dudes, um, myself. I was driving a bus in New York, and those guys, Steve West included, Malcolm and Berman, they'd gotten jobs as security guards at the Whitney Art Museum. And so we were all hanging out a lot. And when there wasn't anything to do in New York City, which was only like two or three days a week, um, we would just drink beer and and make up songs. And, and one of the brilliant things about working with David is that the lyrics would always come first. Um, basically, you'd build your songs around whatever he'd written down on a sheet of paper. Um, and that was the case for over 90% of Silver Juice songs that I played on. It was like, okay, well, here's here's the here's the lyrics. Let's make a song. And I'm sure we're not the only musical artists that have ever worked that way, but um, it was unique for me and definitely very welcome for Malcolmus, who, you know, by the time the early 90s rolled around and pavement, sort of became a thing, especially after saying it Enchanted. It was a real sort of pleasure and a break for him to not have the focus on him. And he could just be a complimentary performer. And um, I think that that freedom he really enjoyed. Um, and we just had a wonderful time. I mean, it was, you know, we were kids in New York City. It was challenging. Um, you know, we'd hang out at the record store, Pure Platters. We'd go to all the clubs in town. There's an unbelievably long list of incredible performers we saw at a wide variety of venues, whether it be Maxwell's in Hoboken or the Pyramid in New York or CB's or a number of other great places to see bands. So over 100 nights a year, there was something that you'd want to go see. Um, so, and we, you know, we always felt we felt like we were never really part of that scene. But we were there, you know, and um, and nobody really knew who any of us were until San Antonio came out. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering uh, if you know what drove David to go to uh, graduate school and uh, sort of if he continued to if he planned to like continue with the Silver Jews or if he was taking like a more of a step towards academia, if you know anything about that. Well, I think that I think that's an excellent question. And I think that. You know, part of it is is that obviously he, he wasn't making anything approaching a living off of early Silver Juice stuff. And, um, you know, he saw, you know, how strenuous touring was for pavement, um, both in 90, 91 and 92. And that was something he wasn't really comfortable with. And... So he realized that he couldn't make a living off of Silver Jews, or at that point couldn't make a living off of his own poetry. It was just a nice diversion, very entertaining diversion for him that he was 
very passionate about. But he realized that he didn't want to be a security guard in an art museum um, throughout his 20s. So I think he realized that his greatest talent is as a, as a, as a poet and a writer and drawer, you know, to a sense, because he, he drew print cartoons. And he just was looking for, and obviously he had a fantastic um, college career, was highly recognized, and I don't think it was particularly difficult for him to get into Massachusetts and in their kind of highly prestigious master's writing program. So it just kind of presented an opportunity for a proper avenue for somebody in their early 20s to be a successful writer. Um, I think he did that without anticipating that Silver Jews a few years later would be something that he would be able to make a living off of. <laughs> so when he went to UMass, um, he really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a challenge, and he succeeded there. And then he, you know, he first started doing what a lot of students in that situation do, and that's, you know, being a teaching assistant. And um, I think he sort of enjoyed that, but, you know, that was kind of a huge challenge for him to, you know, be teaching English writing to undergrads and, you know, which eventually would have led to him then seeking his doctorate, I guess, like, you know, all the avenues that people go down to be professors, which... I'm readily unfamiliar with myself, um, but uh, he, um, you know, quite conveniently, you know, achieved what he wanted to achieve, continued to work, uh, being at UMass, kept him focusing on his writing. Um, he was obviously in there with some, you know, similarly talented people on his own mind that sort of challenged him. Um, I think he had a lot of respect for the his professors there, the same way he did at UVA. And um, so, if anything, it sort of, you know, propelled him forward. Um, and, you know, who knows? I mean, if Silver Jews um, had not, you know, gone on to be something he could carve a living out of, I mean, you know, and obviously he didn't, you know, during his lifetime, he didn't really gain any wealth from it, but, like, he was able to eat and drink and live in decent places. Um, you know, I think that, uh, then, you know, who knows, he might've become, uh, you know, an English professor someday, but he didn't have to worry about that. Um, as the late nineties arrived. Yeah. And, uh, what do you know about that, uh, time with the late nineties for David and sort of what relation you had to the silver Jews during that time? Cause I know you mentioned well, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Because that's because I, you know, that would have been sort of an interesting era for me and David. Because that would have been the sort of the area that I saw him, the era that I saw him the least. Um, he was in New York then. I'd moved to Louisville in '93, '94, and he stayed in New York after UMass. And I mean, I would see him, but I wouldn't see him with the frequency that I had before. And he became friends with Rob Bingham. Malcolm was still there. Mike Fellows, who he played a lot of music with. I mean, Sam Brumbaugh he had a really good group of friends. I mean, he'd been in New York for a while. Um, but first, I lost track of him, you know, for the most part, other than keeping in touch with him and seeing him a few times a year. Um, as far as I know, he got pretty wild. Um, but... Uh, I didn't see too much of that. I only heard about it, you know. Um, I don't think it really hurt his output. I just think, um, and then, you know, after that, as that New York era came to a close, um, Rob Bingham, his, his one of his dear friends, who sadly died in his 30s, um, he was a Louisvillian, Rob was. Um, his family owned the Louisville, Louisville Courier Journal, so he's, he was very wealthy. And he sort of brought David to Louisville. And David, this would have been the late 90s, um, moved into my house at 907 Central Avenue in Louisville across the street from the racetrack, you know, for lack of a better place to live. 
it was sort of a flop house for a lot of people. I would just let people stay in there for free. And pretty instantly, within the first few months he was there, um, I knew his, what became his wife, Cassie Berman. I'd known her since she was a teenager, and they met at a party. And, um, you know, kind of love at first sight of it. And, you know, basically the first several months of their relationship were spent in my house in Louisville, um, which was a crowded house at the time. I think there was about five or six of us living in a place that was like eight or 900 square feet with wow. a corgi, you know. And um, and then he and Kathy was from, was from Louisville. They just decided that they would that they didn't really like the Louisville vibe and that's what led them to Nashville. And, um, so by the end of the nineties, the two of them had moved to Nashville. Um, you know, and again, not the Nashville that this <laughs> is the Nashville today. I mean, they were living, um, and I mean, I would go down there and see them all the time down there. They're only, you know, two and a half, three hours down the road. And um, he immediately immersed himself in in Nashville and made a lot of friends there and really sort of fell in love with the place. Um, and he, he was also very much in love with, you know, what became his wife. I can't remember exactly what year they got married, but somewhere around in there, like if I had to guess, like 2000, that would be a guess. Um, and, you know, they were, um, they seemed very happy together. They were sort of, um, as David refer, referred to as partners in crime. Um, they were pretty, they were pretty wild in their own right, and um, it was a very productive period for David. Um, he was writing and making records, and he was just he became very obsessed with Nashville and its culture and its country music culture, um, things that I never really particularly interested in, and still not, but. Um, obviously, um, he loved it. And, um, you know, then during the early years of this millennium, I would have been, I would have spent two or three years as a jockey agent. And so that meant that my girlfriend, who was a jockey at the time, was traveling to places like Hot Springs, Arkansas, Louisville, Chicago, and... Yeah, so I would keep in touch with David, but I wouldn't see him with extreme frequency. But we would always, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I would always go out of my way to hang out with him because he was one of my best friends, you know. So um, I didn't really see, I mean, I knew he had dark sides. And, you know, the one thing you got to keep in mind about David is like, you know, even the first few months I knew him, I knew he suffered terribly from chronic depression and, um, you know, throughout the course of his life, since he was a young boy, um, there was hundreds and hundreds of attempts by a wide variety of professionals to solve his struggles with depression and, you know, normal, the number of different therapies and techniques. And, um, you know, some things would work for a while and, and, and his, general insanity would overwhelm the treatment for, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and, you know, the thing is he, he did struggle a lot, but, you know, he did, he did a hell of a job of um, persevering and making the most of his time when he wasn't struggling. He was just, he was just always the kind of person that made it very clear when he needed to be left alone and in a lot of ways, because he was so much fun and so exciting, you know, a lot of us would just wait around until he was available. And then, um, you know, he just had a very explosive and, um, enjoyable personality. I mean, he incredibly opinionated guy, uh, wonderful sense of humor, uh, you know, as he, you know, became an, an adult, you know, there's always a certain amount of arrogance. Um, but he, you know, he was like one part supremely confident and one part incredibly depressed. So it was a hell of a combination. Um, <laughs> let's just say there weren't too many dull moments with David.
Hmm. So what was the next project that you worked with David on? Um, I think I wouldn't have really worked with anything until he made that. Um, I don't have my record collection in front of me, nor do I have the Silver Juice discography. Um, oh, hell. Uh, what's the, do you know the record with um, How Can I Love You If You Won't Lie Down? Uh, Tangled with Numbers. The, yeah, Tangled with Numbers. Yeah, yeah. I, never, I never, I didn't play anything again until Tangled with Numbers. Right. And then I played on that song, I played drums on that song, and um, two or three songs on the record. He had Brian Kotzer playing drums with him then, he's a good friend of mine, and Kotzer's a fantastic drummer, I can sing and drum at the same time, and you know, at the time, David was <clears throat> constructing a band, and, um, you know, he was blessed to, in Nashville, of course, where there's, you know, unbelievably talented people, um, you know, he became friends with the likes of Tony Crow, who's several years, not several years, handful of years older than us, but a brilliant keyboardist who was in Lamb Chop for years, and of course, a lovely young man named Willie Tyler is a fantastic guitar player, and and Kotzer was sort of his side sidekick, the, his drummer. And um, you know, I was still friends with him because I was in Louisville a big chunk of the year, and uh, that's basically the strength of that backup band, which included Peyton Pinkerton, who he'd known for years, who he met at UMass. Um, you know, basically, and his wife, of course, who played bass and sang, um, actually gave him the confidence to at least attempt live performance. Um, so around, I guess, around 2005 or 2006, he decided that he was going to take a crack at playing live shows and booked a tour. And then he unusually, he hired myself, the tour manager, and Steve West to be the front of house sound man, because Steve West has a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for being a sound engineer, and he had a studio in his house. And, you know, we were both capable, and we both obviously had spent, you know, payment was long over at that point. We both had spent a lot of time on the road. And so we did a four- or five-week tour with Silver Jews as the crew, and things went pretty well. And then at the end of it, David had a bit of a nervous breakdown and and um, fired both myself and Steve West. I think it might have been the fourth or fifth time that he fired me. Um, he had a way of, like, um, taking out his frustrations on me, which was fine, you know, because I could take it. Um, but, you know, that's the reason I'd moved to Nashville. So I'd, I'd rented an apartment. I was supposed to be the Silver Juice tour manager. I was supposed to tour on and off for a, for you know, 12 to 18 months, I got fired after a month. And the, re the reason specified for, for him firing both myself and Wes was that he felt like the tour felt too pavementy. And I was like, <laughs> well, when you, when you hire two guys that were in pavement for seven to 10 years, you know, uh, I, I imagine that's going to happen, David, you know, um, but uh, actually that was actually would have been the worst stretch of our friendship. Even though I lived like about, a half mile away from uh, I didn't I didn't talk to him for a year, um, and, which was a bit odd. But there was a uh, you know a lot of animosity and a flood of negative emotions, and I just kind of decided that um, the way I'm going to express um, how pissed off I am at him is just to blow him off and. Uh, and we had a lot of mutual friends, which which, which was a bit awkward. But um, then, you know, after after a full year went by to the day, he came he came over to my house and left a note and several gifts and said, "Okay, that's a year," you know. And then we just we just basically picked up where we where we left off. You know, maybe it was kind of a way to like sort of, um, you know, it was like the charging in of a device. You know, yeah. Sometimes when you spend that much time around people, and you know. Somebody who's, yeah, I'd been best man at his wedding, introduced him to his wife. I'd been, you know, one of his oldest friends. <clears throat> we had tons of mutual friends. Um, and I'm saying like dozens. And so, yeah, I mean, 
Uh, so we just kind of picked up where you know, it was like, let bygones be bygones, move on, like a year's enough. So, um, you know, and I knew his mother really well. I met his father several times. I met his grandparents in Worcester um, going way back. And um, his mother, Mimi, I think kind of always sort of, um, you know, to an extent leaned on me as sort of a stabilizing force, like somebody she could, she could trust. And and when she was real concerned about David, she would contact me. And um, on a handful of occasions, I'd sort of like, quite frankly, let her know what was going on and how concerned she should be, you know. So um, I think touring was a bad idea for him. Um, he survived it the first time around. But, um, yeah, for a guy that, you know, always had a hard time singing and playing guitar at the same time. It was quite difficult for him to be a, a front man. And, and um, one of the most impressive things about the last several years that David was alive is he actually taught himself how to play guitar. Um, Cause he, he didn't, he didn't know how to play guitar at all, even though he'd been in a band for 10 years playing guitar. Um, so <laughs> by the time the purple mountains record was made, he actually knew how to play guitar. I was pretty pleased with that as well. Um, did you but, have uh, a yeah? Um, did you have a hand in the Purple Mountains record? No, no. I was actually supposed to play drums on one or two songs, and um, I was working so much. He was really disappointed in me because he was living like sort of in the Chicago area. He was living. Drag City had a house. Um, he wasn't living in the in the drag city offices in a small apartment, which where he would have lived for like the last year that he was alive. But he, they had a house um, about 20 miles from Chicago and David lived there by himself. And it's, you know, I was living in Des Moines, Iowa at the time. And, and it's about a six hour drive. And, and um, he kept wanting me to come up and play drums on um, one or two songs on the record um, specifically the song about his mother, and he became eminently frustrated with me because I, I, just, I just didn't have the time to do it. I was working 65, 70 hours a week in the horse racing industry in Des Moines, and he didn't understand why I couldn't put down my job and just drive up there <laughs> and play drums. There was just like a, a four- or five-month period where I just didn't have the time for it. Mm-hmm. That kind of irritated him. Yeah, and uh, what do you think of that album and sort of the legacy that David's left behind, his body of work in general? Well, I mean, I, I think basically, I think I'm very pleased that, you know, something that was that difficult for him to make, um, I'm very, very pleased that he finished it because there was, I mean, I've been in several situations in recording. In fact, just in the last month, I would have been asked about Terror Twilight um, via interviews dozens of times. And then same thing with Crooked Rain back in the day. There were both albums that, you know, unlike the other three pavement records, um, there's nothing smooth about the recording process of either of those albums, our second and our fifth. Um, you can multiply that times 100 when it comes to Purple Mounds. I mean, he, he he worked on that, stopped and started on that, switched musicians, tried out Malkmus when Vancouver, worked with Dan Behar, worked with loads of different people in loads of different situations traveled around to various Airbnbs, other rental spaces all around the country. Um, he became sort of obsessed with it. Um, it sort of overwhelmed um, what he spoke about. And I'm very pleased that he finished it. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's an outstanding uh, record. Um, you know, I mean, to be quite frank, um, you know, when David's mother died, you know, maybe three years before the record came out, uh, that was very worrisome for me because his mother was his best friend. His mother was his family. His mother was somebody that, you know, he loved, you know, more than anyone else, um, you know, from the start of his life. And unfortunately, very sadly, she died a very slow um, and painful cancer death. And I would say, you know, two or three years before, before David died. And then after that happened, um, 
you know, there wasn't much joy left. He had nobody to turn to, um, you know, including all of his friends, his wife, everyone else. And so he just kind of isolated himself and he was just kind of always on the move. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, like, you know, looking back on it, like to me, it's amazing that he lived as long as he did. I mean, you know, for him to, to live to be 53, like if you'd known him since he was 18, he'd have taken that. I mean, he's a pretty reckless individual and, um, he got himself in a lot of perilous situations. Um, you know, you know, most of, I wasn't around for any of them, but like, you know, I've heard all the stories. I mean, he got in huge trouble in New York and they got in huge trouble with an OD attempt in Nashville. Um, Kathy really came to the rescue several times for David and kept him going. Um, and, so I mean, it's 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 amazing he lived as long as he did, and to me, it's wonderful that he finished you know what he set out to achieve. And you know, I think after that record came out, even though he intended, of course, to tour it and everything, that I think he sort of felt like there's nothing else that he really had had to offer. And um, you know, a lot of ways he he lived a full life and, and accomplished a lot, and. Uh, you know, obviously, since he died, the uh, outpouring of affection for his work and himself has been, you know, pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, he was so isolated from that, I think that he didn't realize how, how many people loved and appreciated his work. He kind of sheltered himself from that because it never really did him any favors. Um the worst thing you could do with David is if he, if, if he gave you something, a piece of music or something that he wrote or a demo or, some, you know, something that he'd written with pen and paper. The worst thing you could do would be to ignore it. Um, he'd much rather have you tell him that you you thought it was terrible and then you'd be in a hell of an argument. Um, in fact, I did that, actually. One of the songs on Purple Mountains was actually... A, a retaliation. In fact, um, he had Steve West had made a song, and he he really laid into Steve West. He thought Steve West's song was really crappy, and and uh, that hurt Steve West's feelings. And and so I just you know flippantly responded with making fun of one of the songs that ended up on the Purple Mountains record, and that really really pissed him off. Um, that was probably a bad move in the context of the overall scheme of things, but. Uh, um, no, I think that, you know, I think that, um, you know, he's I think he basically, you know, obviously he's not around anymore to enjoy it. I don't know if he ever really would have, but I think he definitely um, is very fairly recognized as a brilliant poet and songwriter. And, um, you know, that's certainly more of a legacy than I could ever, ever hope for as somebody that, you know, can't even write a song, you know, so... He worked really hard at it. I mean, you know, he's, he's a very determined guy, and um, he got a lot accomplished. But, like, you know, the overall scheme of things, um, he exceeded my expectations in terms of how long he would live and how much he would accomplish. So, um, sure, you know, like, he died in 2019. I think something like the pandemic, which in certain ways all of us have, have endured, is something that, um, you know, I don't know how David really would have responded to any of that. I mean, he lived a pretty isolated lifestyle anyway, so, you know, and he always had a certain amount of I told you so in him. Um, he was very cynical towards, uh, you know, government and, you know, stuff like that. So, I mean, he, he um, I guess, I mean, if there is one thing I miss, it would be as uncommon and unusual and very well thought out um, and interesting viewpoints on everything from snack cakes to beer to buildings to, you know, I mean, he just, he just had, you know, unique viewpoints on everything. And he was just an unbelievably well-read 
um, highly educated person, you know, way far beyond me. Like, I mean, there's, you know, thousands of things that he'd read and heard that, um, you know, I might've only ever heard the names of that he had strong opinions on. So, you know, he was, he was always a bit over my head. Um, you know, probably because I was so ensconced with things that he considered a name like sports and horse racing, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, our, our interests were, were, were rather different as, as time went on. Like we were definitely, you know, there's a certain amount of congruence to our friendship when we were kids. And then, um, you know, you move far apart, but somebody that, that, you know, is such an important part of your life when you're young, you, you keep in touch with and, and, uh, you know, we had a lot of marvelous experiences together in, in our teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s, even up right up to the last time I ever hung out with him, which would have been the birthday uh, before he died. And um, I talked to him several times about his tour um, and how it seemed to me like that tour was kind of a big ask uh, just on paper. It just seemed like kind of an unwise idea to expect him to tour and play that many shows. I don't know what his intentions were. I don't know if he ever <clears throat> intended to do any of it anyway, <laughs> but I think he set out to do it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know the exact reasons, um, why he ended his life when he ended his life. That you know, that's, that's his own, you know, obviously his own set of decisions. It was interesting after he died, several people who we mutually knew, um, reached out to me and said that they saw signs, clear signs over the last six months or year that he was alive, that, you know, regardless of the material of the record and how dark and, you know, to a certain extent, suicidal, a lot of the songs are, they had had personal experiences with David that they were very scared that he was going to um, kill himself. And at his funeral, a lot of people reached out to me and were like, Oh, I should have told you about it, Bob. Like, <laughs> and I just, I said, look, I really appreciate that. But like, at what point did you, do you think that I could ever reach out with my right arm and stop a freight train? You know, I mean, um, no, the guy was very determined to do everything that he did. And um, that was including making a choice to end his own life. So, um, you know, I mean, there's just no, nothing you can do. Um, in my opinion, when anybody dies, you know, most people, it's not by their own doing, not by their own choice. Um, but David, his life was filled with an incredible amount of pain. It was a very difficult life ever since he was a young boy. I mean, I would say even before he was 10 years old, um, he struggled and he was undergoing therapy. Um, and nobody really could successfully solve his problem and i don't think that he's alone at all in that regard i just think it's pretty remarkable to struggle that much in your life and still find a lot of ways to create a lot of amazing stuff and not only inspire people who didn't know him but also inspire a lot of his friends and colleagues that loved him and appreciated his work so yeah. All right. Thank you, Bob. Uh, this has been a yeah, lot. Yeah. No problem, man. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about the uh, sorry about the delay. I was actually just so ensconced in making these sets <laughs> that I just lost track of time. You know, like, and I, I, I appreciate your patience. No problem. Thank you so much again. Yeah. All right, man. Have a great night. You too. Bye bye. This has been WMUA News. I'm Owen Embry.